Hello, everyone, and welcome. My name is Andrew. And I'm Rachel. And we are Picked to the Scene podcast. We are a true kind podcast aiming to put you, the listener, at the scene of the crime. Each week, we delve into the murky world of lesser-known crimes from the UK and Ireland, and occasionally, we venture into renowned cases from around the globe. If you like what you hear, please do follow us on whatever social media platform you prefer, subscribe to us on your preferred podcast platform of choice, and if you have the capability, give us a rating and review as well. It really means the world to us, doesn't it, Rachel? Absolutely. We love the ratings and reviews. We love hearing from our lovely listeners. We love everything. We love it all. We do indeed. And if you like it that much that you want to support us, you can do so for less than the price of a cup of tea or coffee on Patreon, with our lowest tier starting at £1 per month. We release bonus content every month. The links to our social medias and Patreon can be found in the show notes or visit patreon.com forward slash scenepod, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash s-c-e-n-e-p-o-d. Now we do, where possible, now release our episodes a week early for our Patreon supporters, so you don't have to be part of the Jetson family to live in the future. All you have to do is support us on Patreon. Now, be serious here for a moment. It really does help us so much and we hope that one day we get enough support that, at the very least, it covers our costs, don't we, Rach? Yeah, I think that's the that's the end goal, isn't it? We're not looking to uh, make a silly amount of money, but uh, we would love to, um, yeah, just have that extra incentive to um, yeah. be here um, and do do what we love for our lovely listeners. Exactly, um, to, to hit yeah. net zero so we don't. So the, the, the only thing, yeah, the only thing it costs us is time and effort. So, because unfortunately, like Rachel just said, producing and hosting a show, it doesn't care costs. But we're putting that to one side. And with any true crime podcast, listener discretion is always advised. And today is definitely no exception, because I will be outlining, unfortunately, descriptions of both prolonged torture and death. Just another day yes. in Picture the Scene Studios. I'll try not to glamorise it, but I can't avoid telling it if you want to hear the story. Was the word you were trying to say sensationalise? It was, and I'll leave that in there just so our listeners know that I can't pronounce that word. So how are you doing, Rachel? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm not too bad, thanks. Not too bad. Oh. I'm sparkling. Obviously I'm sparkling. Yay. Any any other response is unacceptable. That's like you saying, are you ready for some true crime? And I go, maybe. yeah, sure, whatever. <laughs> well, with that, I guess, are you ready for some true crime? Yeah, sure, whatever. <laughs> okay. I joke. I can't wait. Let's go. Okay, then. So if it's... Let me stop laughing first. I'm being serious now, Rachel. Serious episode. If it's safe you to do so, I'd like you to relax. Close your eyes and picture the scene. Today I'd like to take us back to the 13th of March, 2009. And this week we head off to Chilton in County Durham. Now Chilton is in the northeast of England. It's a town. It's around nine miles south, due south actually, roughly from the city of Durham, which is a namesake for the county. It's got a population of just over 4,000 people, but at the time it would have been closer to 3,700 people. Oh. I'm glad we all know that. There's a bit of a boom since 2009 and current day. 300 yeah. extra heads. Yes. <laughs> as 
as we've come to expect recently, this town is like most of us. It's great in parts, but it's not really notable for anything in particular. It's an old mining town attempting to adjust to life less reliant on coal. But we don't create episodes based on what a place is famous for, do we, Rachel? So that doesn't really matter. We don't. And to all of our lovely listeners that live in Durham, even though Andrew's basically said your town is unremarkable, we still love you. (laughs) Thank you for making it sound that way. (laughs) Now, on this day in March of 2009, it was late at night, 11.27pm to be exact. That is late. Yes, and it was around 8 degrees Celsius, which is 46 degrees Fahrenheit, with a 13 miles per hour wind coming from the south. But it was bone dry, not a chance of any rain. Now, at 11.27pm, in Arthur Street in Chilton, a man named Simon Nichols dialed 999 to seek help from the emergency services. Simon Nichols lives in a house with three other people. Claire Nichols, his sister, Steve Martin, who was Claire's ex-partner, and Andrew Gardner, Claire's current partner. Wow. What a weird setup. So a sister lives with her brother, her ex-husband or partner, and her current partner. Yeah, and four kids, actually, yeah. And four kids, just to add a bit more manic to the the pot. Yeah. That's quite the setup. I can see how you have advised that uh, it's going to be a grim episode. There's definitely going to be some violence. Yes, there is, unfortunately. Now, Andrew, Claire's current partner, was the reason Simon was calling for help. He informed the emergency operator that Simon had come from a nighttime walk and complained that he had been attacked and he had collapsed on the floor. So just as a point of note, actually, because Andrew was 35, Claire was 28, her brother, who made a call, was 24, and Steve, Steve and Martin, Steve Martin was 44. I just want to put that out there, actually, before I forget. Okay, so Andrew was the one that had gone for the late night walk. Yes. He'd come back, alerted Simon, who'd called the police, uh, who called 999 because Andrew had been attacked. Yes. So an ambulance and the police were rushed to the house on Arthur Street, and when the paramedics arrived, they found Andrew laying on the floor in just his shorts, motionless, lifeless, stiff, and sadly, already dead. Oh, wow. When the police questioned the housemates, as obviously they would when faced with a dead body, Simon told police that Andrew had left the house at 8.30pm to go out for a walk. He wasn't sure where. He just said that Andrew returned home just after 11, and he was complaining about being in pain because he'd just been beaten up. Claire, Andrew's girlfriend and mother of their one-year-old daughter, said that she was upstairs in bed when her partner got home, so she didn't witness when he got in. Steve Martin, the housemate and remember Claire's ex, told the police that he had actually been watching TV with Simon when Andrew returned home, so he backed up Simon's story. Strangely, though, when police did a cursory search of the house, they found a mum of Claire and Simon, Janet Hall, who didn't even live in the house. She did live a few doors down. They found her hiding behind a bathroom door. What? Now, it was never explained why, by her or anyone, why she was doing that. So that will forever be a mystery, but they actually found her hiding behind the bathroom door. When the police... So I don't even know why I put that in there, but I guess 
perplexed. It it perplexed me. When the police did take Simon's story on face value, well, they did take his story on face value, they were also aware that the paramedic said that the level of stiffness in Andrew's body meant that he had been dead for several hours, not the 30 to 45 minutes that Simon said he had been laying down. I was going to say, you kind of gave us a brief timeline there. He'd returned home just after 11. He'd been complaining that he'd been beaten up. So he'd obviously, in Simon's original um, statement, he'd been able to talk and to uh, like converse at that point. Um, then for the paramedics to turn up, what, maybe 20 minutes, 10 to 20 minutes after yeah. the 999 call maximum? Yeah, 15, I think. To be faced with a, a stiff body, like rigor mortis doesn't set in for quite some time, does it? Um, so that that's a bit mad. I, yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask about that, but uh, yeah, okay, not surprised. And, you know, stuff like that um, will immediately make the police suspicious because the ambulance staff will be able to put a rough time of death on, on the body, won't they? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, before we get on to what happened to Andrew, let me give you a little bit more detail on him. He was unemployed at the time of his death. He'd had several jobs in the past, but nothing long-term and nothing that would stick. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, he had a one-year-old daughter with Claire. Now, there wasn't a whole lot of information out there about him, except that he was quite timid. He would actively avoid confrontation rather than seek it. And even if the confrontation occurred in front of him, it was known just to avoid it and get out of the way. It was also known by the doctors that he had additional needs. It was obvious from initial observation of Andrew's body that something serious had happened to him, that he didn't die of natural causes. A post-mortem would be ordered to determine exactly how Andrew had died, and that post-mortem would reveal that he had at least 150 different detectable injuries. Including, oh yes, including 21 rib fractures, a broken skull, and brain injuries that were that serious, they were likened to the same type of brain injuries that happen when a person has been in a car crash or fallen from a tall building. So whatever's happened to Andrew, it's been prolonged and sustained, right? Possibly, yes. Wow. So, yes, yeah, to give some context as to what his body was like, it would take six medical experts six days to complete his post-mortem, documenting each injury. Now, the police were certain, well, they were pretty certain, that one or more of the members of the house in which he lived in were involved in how Andrew had died. They just didn't know who, and they had no proof, so they had to investigate the whole situation. It wasn't at first clear, it wasn't even clear actually at first that Andrew even lived there. Neighbours would tell the police that they'd never heard him, they'd never seen him enough to think that he did live there. So if he did live there, he must have been really quiet. And just to give you some context, the street, Arthur Street in uh, Chilton was, well, it still is, a row of terrace houses on both sides of the street and all these houses too. So soundproofing wouldn't have been great you know mm. you normally knew what your neighbors were getting up to I, yeah i i appreciate that but he's got a one-year-old with with claire right yes 
you would expect that the father would live with the mother and the child unless the relationship had broken down. No, the relationship hadn't. Yeah, you'd say so, but I'm just saying the neighbours never really saw him or yeah. heard him, so they didn't know that. that he lived there. Now, some neighbours did say that they heard rage voices and arguments sometimes, but it always sounded like Claire was involved in the arguments because they said they sounded like she was on the receiving end of the arguments, or they, they assumed oh. that anyway, by the noises that they could hear, all the screaming and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Now, Andrew's parents did say that they had seen him a few weeks before looking thin and withdrawn because he went to the house asking for money for food. But they didn't even know that he lived in Arthur Street. Oh, wow. Did anyone know that he had this child, this one-year-old? I'm not sure. I Actually, I don't know. This, this, this case is mad. Like The police definitely had their work trying to map everything out and uh yeah definitely we so, the logistics of that household so yeah as for the other occupants claire his his girlfriend it was her house primarily and she had four kids in total three daughters aged nine five and one as i said the one-year-old with andrew and she mm. had one son aged seven and she worked part-time in a charity shop steve martin I could find little about him other than he used to be with Claire. But before that, he actually dated Claire's mum. And then he actually moved into the house on request of Claire after she had started dating Andrew. The help with the kids, or was that not documented? No, she just asked him to move in from what I can gather. It's mad. Simon, Claire's brother, didn't work and he was also classed as having additional needs. He was the first person to become friends with Andrew, and they both met met in an additional needs education course that had been set up. And from the pair becoming friends, that's how Andrew met Claire and started dating her. But she only dated him after her sister had already dated Andrew. What? Yeah, so Andrew went out with her sister and then started dating Claire afterwards. Oh, okay, so Claire and Simon have a, a sister, another sister. Yeah. Who doesn't live with them, doesn't that dated them. Andrew. Yes. Okay. <laughs> and Claire's ex lives in the house with oh. her mum's ex before Claire. Wow. Yes. So, yeah, the police interviewed them all, and they all stuck to their story, occasionally imp- implying that if Andrew had been hurt, it must have been one of the others, specifically Claire, but blame was never really apportioned by any of them, as if to say, like, that person killed him. That never happened. So all three of them were arrested and taken to court. The prosecution started a trial as they meant to carry on, with the barrister for the Crown, Paul Sloan, He put the case very clearly, and he would say this in the opening statement. Before I say this, did you realise, I found this out, and I thought this was fascinating. I know I'm going off on a tangent here, but in the UK, or it may just be England and Wales, I'm not certain, the defence can only make an opening statement if they intend to call a witness for the defence that isn't the defendant. So if they don't intend to call any witnesses or only the defendant, they can't make an opening statement. I didn't realise that. That's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, that is fascinating, but I guess it plays into the whole 
the defense aren't there to prove anything, are they? So they almost don't make that opening statement because they're not there to to set the scene, are they? But no, that that knowing that now is interesting, but it, it does play into the whole purpose of why the defense are in court, really. Yes. Yes, but anyway, Paul to get back to the the story, Paul Sloan, who was a barrister for the prosecution, this was part of his opening statement. He would say this. Andrew Gardner had suffered extensive injuries. It was apparent that Andrew Gardner had been severely and repeatedly beaten, burnt, and tortured over a period of weeks. He would mm-hmm. go on he would go on to make a point about the twenty one different rib fractures that I mentioned earlier, saying this. The rib fractures are such that they are normally encountered at the severe end of the spectrum, as seen in a car crash or considerable fall from height. The only reasonable explanation for the rib fractures is that Andrew Gardner was repeatedly and forcibly jumped on with feet or knees as he lay on the floor. He would go on to outline all of the other injuries that Andrew had suffered from, but not, and this is a not exclusive list, but it, some of these are some of the ones what he listed. He listed that his feet and left leg had been badly burnt. He had burns to his back and neck. And he would argue that they would prove had been inflicted by a lighter along with a left shoulder burn that he said was consistent with it being held against a hot radiator. He went on to say that they all lived in the house together and he would say this, Claire Nichols and Simon Nichols are sister and brother. At the relevant time the deceased, Andrew Gardner was Claire Nichols' partner. Stephen Martin, the third defendant, had at one time been Claire Nichols' partner. Notwithstanding the the cessation of that relationship, Claire Nichols and Stephen Martin still maintained what can be described as an on-off relationship. So that confirms what you thought. It wasn't just a, will you move in, please? Because you're a friend. Yeah, this is so strange. Like, and, and I'm guessing that bringing them all together... In the court, with with so were they all in court? With they all tried at once. Yes, yeah. with separate barristers, um, yes. And I'm guessing bringing that together just fueled the the fire of 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 the tell all of you know, um, Steve's barrister, for instance, saying, "Oh, Claire, you had secrets to keep, didn't you?" And um, you know, Simon's barrister saying, um, "You know, this about his sister versus this about his sister's ex." Like that would have been quite heated, wouldn't it? Yeah, well, yeah, we'll get into it, but yeah, um, you're you're on the right path. For two weeks, different medical experts would give evidence, and the picture they painted was a horrible one, Rachel. The paramedics who attended the scene gave evidence about what he was told by Simon, how Andrew had gone for a walk, and how it was obvious, given the state of the body, Andrew had been dead for several hours, so his account couldn't have been true. Because at this point, they were still sticking to that story, by the way. Burns experts would give evidence on how they said each of the burns would occur. Also, evidence was heard that the burn marks on Andrew's neck and back matched the pattern exactly that would occur if Steve Martin's lighter had been used to inflict the wounds. The Home Office pathologist, Nigel Cooper, he would give evidence which showed that there was an innumerable number of blows that had been rained down on Andrew, which included from slaps, kicks, 
and blows from weapons that could only have been inflicted over a number of weeks, as you said, prolonged. You're good at this, Rachel. He would go on to state that the point of an object or objects had been pulled deliberately and repeatedly across the surface of Andrew's body. Noughts and crosses, or tic-tac-toe for American listeners, had been played on Andrew's back with a knife. Oh my God. How on earth did the neighbours not hear the screams? I know. Well, actually I do know because I'm skipping ahead a bit, but basically they'd gag him. Um, Paul Sloan, remember the prosecuting barrister, would argue that it would have been obvious given the the medical evidence that was heard that Andrew wouldn't have needed urgent medical attention for quite some time. So the suggestion that he suffered all of his injuries in one night out while out for a walk was ridiculous. Graham Stevenson, do you know those people that work for Sky that installed your satellite television? The engineers, yeah. Yeah, he he was one of these, Graham Stevenson, and he gave evidence that two weeks before Andrew's death, he was in the house, he stole his from satellite television, when an argument had started over smoking. He said that Claire started shouting at Andrew, saying, you know it's my house, when the engineers leave, you leave, you've had one beating, do you want another one? According to Graham, Andrew looked terrified and just said, I know, I know. Oh my God, you imagine being that engineer thinking, what is going on here? Like, listening yeah. to, to a woman say, like, screaming that at a man as well. As, I mean, we've spoken extensively about how, you know, abuse, whether it be emotional or physical, happens on both sides, you know, with males and females being at the helm. But quite often when you are listening or reading about these true crime cases, the women are a lot are a lot more able to like control their emotions in public than men are. Yeah. So quite often when you see these cases in in public, the woman has been quite reserved, shy, quiet, you know, all of those classic oh I'd never have put her down as as that kind of person kind of ways. But this this woman, Claire, she's doing it right in front of a visitor in the home, like, who's probably only staying for, like, 45 minutes. But, you know, she's just got no fear, has she? It gets worse, unfortunately, Rachel. Claire's seven-year-old son gave evidence via TV link. No way. He would say, when he was asked where Andrew was, he would say that Andrew was in jail because he had tried to break the family. He didn't actually know that he was dead. He'd been told that he'd got to jail because he tried to break the family. Her son would describe how Andrew didn't eat very much. He wasn't allowed to eat with the family and he wasn't given food. He would say that Andrew would stare at them and ask for food, saying that he was hungry. But he would just get shouted at for doing so. He said that sometimes Andrew would steal food, bread and chocolate. The times that he could remember anyway, he said that he could remember him stealing some bread and chocolate. And when he was caught, he'd be told off and beaten by all three adults. He said, um, sorry. Do we know what, like, I mean, obviously you've already expressed that Andrew had additional needs. Do we know what his, like, mental age was and his capacity in, in it, these it, kind of it, situations? It wasn't, he could still 
it didn't impair him enough that he couldn't just live a normal adult life. He just needed oh, okay. it. He just needed additional help. Yep, support. Yeah, okay, yeah. got you. So, like, they really are treating him like um, a child, even though mentally he's capable of, like, you know, behaving yeah. like an adult. That's This is awful. Yeah, exactly. Now, Claire's son said that the adults would count and measure the food so that if there was any missing, they would know Andrew had taken it. He would go on to describe that Andrew wasn't allowed to fall asleep, that his mum would not let him, and he would, she would make him walk around for a few minutes if he started to fall asleep. Oh, my goodness. And can I just add as well, I think you said before there was a five and a seven-year-old, well, obviously seven-year-old's given evidence, but there was yeah. also a five-year-old. And a nine-year-old. And a na- nine-year-old yeah. in the house, right? How often would they be like skimming a handful of s- cereal or, you know, a biscuit or two off the top? Like my seven-year-old does it in the house, you know. Oh, who 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 had a biscuit? Not me. So, you know, the kids are probably getting Andrew in, in further trouble aren't they as well? N- n- not to their knowledge, or at least, you know, you well, hope that they were none the wiser of the, the extent of, of which he'd be punished because of that. But, oh, it's just, just awful. He must have been living in fear constantly. Yeah. Well, you say that. Let's carry on, shall we? He said that his mum would often punch and karate kick Andrew and that his mum let him and his sisters punch kick and hit Andrew with things. They were also allowed to write swear words on Andrew's body and he was asked why and he said because he was bad. Oh my goodness. So basically she encouraged and let them hit him, punch him, kick him, write words on him. So so yeah, so you say the kid didn't know. The kid obviously didn't realise it was wrong because they'd been told by the mum to do it but they obviously knew it was happening. Because it was part those, of it. Those kids as well, you know, they're being shaped and their behaviours in future as, you know, young adults, are, are that you know, they'll be absorbing and taking it all in like a sponge, won't they? And thinking that that's normal behaviour and it's just really awful, really horrible. Yeah. Yeah, now the prosecution, they also read out sections of an interview Simon, Claire's brother, had given the police in which he remembered to the police one time Claire had kicked Andrew. Now, this goes on what you were saying, and upon hearing that, Claire couldn't control herself in court, and she shouted at her brother, in open court, that's Rich coming from you, you were the one that kicked him in the ribs. So you're so saying... The, the veil is starting to slip. Yes. She, had, she actually had to be physically restrained by the officers in the courtroom. And it stops proceedings for a while because she lost her temper that much. So just to sum, just to summarise it so far, Rachel, it'd been proven without a shadow of a doubt that Andrew had basically been tortured to death. The prosecution did try to show evidence that Steve Martin, or at least his lighter, had burned Andrew, showing that he was involved. And the son of Claire, who obviously I can't name for legal reasons because he's a kid, and he's innocent in this, showed that while he thought it was normal what happened to Andrew, because he was bad, he showed that all three adults were involved. Then there was the outburst by Claire over the statement she heard of her brother's words. 
So now it was time for the defence to lay out their case. Now you've probably seen why I went into the court case. Well, because I normally tell you before, don't I? But mm. the court case was interesting. So now it was time for the defence to lay out their case. Simon and Steve, I'm not going to go into them too much, but their argument as to why they were not responsible was pretty much that they were not involved, but they would both say that Claire had a bad temper. So if anyone had been involved, it was her. They were still sticking to their story. Yeah, I love it. They're just like, oh, by the way, we're not saying anything did happen, but if it did happen, it was definitely that person's fault. Definitely not mine. So when Claire was called to the witness stand by her barrister, it was different, though. Her defence barrister immediately asked for the charges to be read again to her. Now, when this happens in court, it's because... It's usually because the defendant is going to change their plea. That's like the formal oh. procedure. And she did just that. She didn't plead guilty to murder, but she accepted that she was guilty to manslaughter. Now, it's interesting that normally what happens then is like the prosecution accepts it or not. Now, the prosecution immediately rejected this manslaughter guilty plea and said they want to carry on trying her for murder. Not no. surprised. It's uh, right now. It's a slam dunk case, like, and she or the guidance of her counsel has been, you know, might want to reassess here. They're they're thinking, okay, she's shaking in her boots now. So let's let's pr- progress with with the murder case. I'm not surprised the prosecution did did just that. Exactly. Now, given she was now trying to go for manslaughter. And like you say, it was probably after some sensible advice from a barrister, given the evidence so far. She she would admit to a lot more in the witness box than she had ever said before. She said before she started her statement that she wanted to finally tell the truth. She would admit to inflicting most of the injuries that were found in Andrew's body. She said that she would punch him, slap him, and to back up the prosecution evidence, she said that she would repeatedly fall on Andrew's ribs with her knees with enough enough force to fracture them. Yeah. She said that she would humiliate Andrew by having sex with Steve Martin in front of him in the same room. Oh my goodness. She, she would go on to accept. <laughs> this, is, this is an odd thing to say after admitting all that. But she would go on to accept that she had a bad temper and she had a problem with controlling people. While she would admit to most of the injuries, she denied scolding him with a boiling with boiling hot water from the kettle. She denied holding him against a piping hot radiator. She denied whipping him with curtain wire or branding him with a cigarette lighter. She said that her brother had also attacked him in the ribs when Andrew had stuck up for Claire in arguments that she had had with her brother. So imagine that rage. After all that he was put through... He still tried to stick up for her to defend her when she was arguing with her brother. Coercive control, though, isn't it? Like you, yeah. um, you end up thinking, you know, if I, if I'm, if I'm nice to them, they might just change. There's a small chance that, you know, they'll see that I'm, you know, I, I abide by them and I'm, I'm a good person, and it's just awful. And and actually, I'm just thinking. Obviously, she's admitting th- some of these awful torturous kind of things that she used on Andrew but some of the really grave ones like the burning the scalding 
um, she's not admitting to. I wonder if that's where she thinks she might get off on the murder charge because... Well, she still might. Let's see. Well, yeah. Only my thoughts just now that I just kind of wanted to put across were, you know, I, yeah, I hurt him. I, I tortured him. And I definitely wasn't a nice person. I lost my temper. But I didn't mean for him to die. Yeah. Yeah. It probably was a route she was going down. Now, when she was questioned by her brother's barrister, he put to her that she was implicating her brother out of pure revenge for hearing what he had said to the police earlier on in the court case. And she denied all that. She said that she was telling the truth. She would say that it was Steve Martin, her ex, who burned him with boiling water. And it was also Steve Martin who had branded him with a lighter and held him against a radiator, boiling hot radiator. She said that Steve would often scratch him with keys and that Steve would often hit him. He, she said that Steve had painted Andrew's nails with nail polish and told him that he was not man enough for Claire before having sex with Claire in front of him. She admitted depriving him of food. She admitted beating him when he stole a chocolate bar because he was too hungry to not eat. She said that she ripped the pockets off, out, off all of Andrew's trousers so he couldn't steal and hide food. She said that Andrew would often cower on top of the wardrobe, hugging his knees and crying out of fear. She admitted not letting him sleep. She also admitted... She also admitted allowing her children to verbally and physically abuse him. She said that because he bled when he was attacked, she wouldn't let him on the sofa. And when she did let him sleep, he had to sleep in newspapers or plastic bags so he wouldn't get blood on the carpet. She admitted the punches and kicks that made Andrew unconscious that he would not wake up from and die. She admitted that she had been the one to administer them. And when I'm just to give you some context here again, when Andrew died, he was five foot nine inches tall, yet he only weighed 57 kilograms, which is just under nine stone. And she said, she was finally asked, why did you lie in your police interview? And she said it was because it was out of fear. So fear for everyone, of fear of him, being, no, being caught by the police. You've already been caught, you idiot. Yes. So for everyone listening and you, Rachel, you have to remember that I've not listed all the injuries here. I only listed enough so we'd have enough context. This poor man, Andrew Gardner, was systematically tortured and beaten to death over several weeks. It was also argued, and I think this is probably true, although they could never prove it, that not all injuries would have been detected on death, and some would have either healed or and this is the worst thing, they would have just been disguised by other injuries because he kept getting beaten. So it's been, yeah, it's just pure horrific. So, Rachel, what do you think? Did these three, and I'm happy to call them this, three vile creatures, do you think they got found guilty of murder? Oh, yeah. Or, in Claire's case, if not murder, manslaughter? No, I, I think they got found guilty of murder, but I'm sure the jury would have seen right through. Um, that last ditch attempt um, at, at certainly Claire trying her hand at, okay, you got me, but I'm only going to admit that um, there wasn't intent to kill. There was just intent to harm there. 
um, or at least I'm hoping so, because those three individuals do not deserve to see the light of, of freedom again. So you happily, Rachel, you're right. All three of them would be found guilty of murder, all of them getting a mandatory life sentence. Claire? Have a guess. How long do you think Claire got? 28 years minimum. Claire would get a minimum term of 32 years. Wow. I thought I was being um being a bit like generous on the on the ruling with 28 years. So yeah, 32, amazing. There was no mitigating circumstances at all, was there? No, no. Um, And that 32 years, like minimum term, she then has to have shown at that point, because what she was 28 when she committed the crime? Yes. She has to show then at the 32-year point that, you know, sorrow, remorse, learnings and things like that. So she she might not be out for a hell of a lot longer than that that minimum term. Whatever. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. Her brother Simon would get a minimum term of 25 years. And Steve Martin would get a minimum term of 20 years. So after... After the trial, I think it's because she admitted that she did most of it. Okay, yeah. But but because they weren't able to determine who dealt the fatal blow... No, or... she admitted it, remember? No, but did she admit... Yeah, she admitted be, uh, inflicting the, f- the final punches and kicks that sent him unconscious that he never woke up from. Okay, okay, sorry. Right. Uh, so after the trial, the police officer in charge of the case... DCI Nails would say that it was the most brutal and violent murder he or anyone at his station had ever encountered. Now, all three of them, Claire, Simon, and Steve, they would appeal the length of the sentence. But all three of them would lose that appeal. So I'm not even going to bother going into that because they really had no chance of being successful at all. Uh, the, the appeal judges just said they. The trial judge got everything exactly right. So, what do you think of this one, then, Rachel? If I need to even ask, just really disgusted at how evil human beings can be, and on the flip side, how poor Andrew must have felt like in you know a large part of his adult life being treated that way and definitely in his final hours and days given it was a prolonged attack he just must have felt so alone and I can't help but think about um yeah about how much he'd have probably urged for death to come calling if if he knew there was no getting out of of the situation he was in it was implied and suggested obviously would never notice that he stayed there and accepted all the abuse because of his daughter. And how often do we see in abuse cases that the abused adult doesn't want to leave because they're just scared that that abuse will then be inflicted on their sibling or their next of kin? You know, um, so yeah, quite often they're just putting up with being treated the way that they're being treated so that no one else has to suffer at the hands of the abuser. And he must have been petrified because remember two weeks before his death, 
he went to his parents' house. He didn't tell them a word. He just asked them for money because he told them he was hungry. Because obviously, they were not letting him eat. Yeah, and you said at the time he looked frail, didn't he? Emaciated. Yeah. His parents noted that. Like, yeah, what a cry for help. And you know that that's not their fault. They're thinking, you know, our son's not telling us. Of course, our son would tell us if there was something wrong. He's, yeah, you know, just lost lost a bit of weight. He'll be fine. Off. Oh, this is heart, heart such a heartbreaking, pointless, and unnecessary death that's occurred here at the hands of three extremely evil individuals. Yeah, and do you know what I think? And this is pure conjecture, so I'm not saying this for immediate happened at all, but I think that her mum must have been involved. Because why was she there hiding behind the mm. bathroom when a dead body was there and had been there, obviously, for hours? Like, why was she... Unless there? her mum had witnessed something and wasn't allowed to leave. Well, maybe, but yeah, mm. maybe. I, I understand that. That's tricky. You know what, though? Can I just say, like, the kids as well, the four children that are left yeah. behind, I mean, not necessarily the one-year-old. You'd, you'd hope that that's that's an, an age where there the really will be no recollection of anything or anyone, which is a shame that she will never know much about her dad. But... um but those impressionable five, seven, and nine-year-olds are left, you know, without either parent yeah. because both are now in jail, but also with the memories of, of what their childhood looked like and thinking it was acceptable to treat human beings, grown human beings like that. Like, yeah. you know, they're gonna, there's going to be some therapy and care needed to make sure yeah. that those children are nurtured and, and recognise the, the wrongdoings of their parents. Definitely, because you've got to remember, even when her son gave evidence in court, now you've, always, you've got to imagine that her eldest daughter, who was two years older than her son, must have already been traumatised or not believe anything, to not want to give evidence. But he believed that Andrew was in jail because he tried to do bad things for the, against the family. So even right up until that point... He was as defending far, his mum. As far, yeah, as far as he was concerned, all this was happening, it was Andrew's fault. It it really is heartbreaking, isn't it, from every angle. Everyone has suffered. Yes. And those three individuals get to, you know, survive, stay alive, keep on breathing, get fed, watered, looked after every day. Yes. They they don't have to live like animals. It's, I mean, I do not believe in an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but in, in these particular cases, I just think, They'll probably be having quite a cushy time in jail, won't they? Yeah, but then Andrew had out of jail. Mm, no real responsibility. No, um, you know, nothing to worry about. Exactly. Shall I wrap this one up, Rachel? Yes. So this has been season three, episode 20, called Torture to Death. And if it's safe you to do so, I'll let you to relax. Close your eyes and picture the scene. Quiet. A good mother. Caring. Loving. And friendly. All words that were used to describe Claire Nichols by friends, family and neighbours. How wrong could they have been? So let me ask all of you this. Do we ever really know anyone? Very good question, Andrew. Very good question. 
So thank you all, and we shall be back next week. Thank you for listening. Thanks, guys. Bye. Thank you.